And if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 2 is where you'll want to turn. Matthew chapter 2. Have you found it? All right. You doing okay this morning? I'm glad about that. I really am. Um, Real quick, before I have us read together, just want to remind you, we did the announcement about baptism service. If you have not followed the Lord and Believer's baptism, let me know. Love to be able to talk to you about that as we have our service coming up next week. Just get in touch with me this week on that. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here's God's word for us this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Will you pray with me? Father, please bless our study of a very familiar passage in your word and bring your name glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. What thoughts come into your mind When I say the word politics, interesting the sound effects you get when you say that word, isn't it? But have you noticed that many people will think of that one word in very different ways? You ever seen that? To some people, politics are fascinating. To others, politics are super important. To some, to be political is synonymous with being dishonest or manipulative. To some, politics are confusing or frustrating. Or, as I once heard a person say, the word politics is obviously a compound word. It combines the prefix poly, which we all know means many, with the noun ticks, which we all know are little blood-sucking parasites. Truth is, people respond to one word in a variety of ways. And in just the same way, people are going to respond to truth in different ways. When we tell somebody the truth about Jesus, some people are going to respond with curiosity, some with faith, some with doubt, some with bitterness. Well, as we open the Word of God this morning, 
We're about to see the person of Jesus presented to a few different groups. And in that presentation, we'll see three different responses to him. And in those responses, we're going to be able to measure our own understanding of and our own response to Jesus. So if you're a note taker, we have some note takers still, right? A couple of you, good. Make space for five points. They'll happen fast. Don't get scared of the number five. But there will be five. Now, if you're curious, today is the beginning of a new series, a new sermon series in our church. We're going to begin walking through Matthew's Gospel and seeing the things that he has to teach us about the Savior. Now, somebody might be saying, well, wait a minute, we just read Matthew 2. Why did we do that? We studied Matthew chapter 1 over Christmas. Do you guys remember? If you say no, I'm just kind of hurt, by the way. It just hurts my heart. No, we, we did. We looked at, we looked at the, the genealogy and the birth narrative of Jesus back in December. And so now that we've finished Colossians, we're coming right back into the gospel. And we're just going to step on forward here and see more of the life of the Savior unfold. I, I also want to let you know a couple things. We're not going to spend a lot of time right here at the beginning. I'm not going to give you one of those, this is the series introduction. Let me give you an outline of the book kind of thing. Some folks do that. I'm not going to do that to you today. As we go through the book, you'll be able to see unfolding key themes, structures, things like that. I'll point them out as we go, but we're not going to spend a lot of time front-loading this. And also, in case you're curious, the plan is that we will take breaks from Matthew from time to time so that this isn't the only book you hear over the next three years or something like that, right? It's a big book. You've got to take small bites if we're going to make it through, but we will, Lord willing, make it through. So let's get started looking at the life of our Savior in the Gospel according to Matthew. Point number one, if you have an outline, is this. Be drawn to Jesus. Be drawn to Jesus. Look at verses one, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So we open the passage, and we see here a section of verse number one that provides for us both the timing and the setting of the events to follow. First... We see that this is after the time of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. It looks like this could be anywhere from a few months all the way up to possibly two years after the first Christmas night. So all of your nativity scenes are wrong. I just want you to know that right up front. It's okay, though. We're not mad at you. Now, the exact date for this event is tough to set, but we do have some historical facts that will help us to know when did this occur in human history. King Herod the Great, Herod I, reigned in Jerusalem when Jesus was born. This is the same king who was famous for building Caesarea, for expanding and improving the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and for murdering his own family members whenever he feared that they might have designs on his throne. Herod died, most historians believe, in the year 4 BC. So, doing a little logic... The events we're reading about, because Herod was alive, have to have occurred before the year 4 B.C. And if we believe that Jesus could be up to two years old when this takes place, most people would place the birth of Jesus somewhere between the years 4 and 6 B.C. Now, 
Does it bug you, by the way, that we're putting Jesus being born in the B.C. era? Kind of sounds messed up, doesn't it? But here's the problem. When men changed the calendar that people go by, from a Roman calendar to a Christian calendar back in the 6th century A.D., some of them had a little trouble with their math. You all ever have trouble with your math? They had some trouble with their math. And they had a little trouble with their history and their calculations. They wanted to date it right, but they missed by a few years. And so they missed having that calendar place the birth of Jesus in A.D. 1, which is where it should have been, but you know. So according to our calendar, we should say Jesus was born somewhere around the year 6 B.C. That's not a super important fact, but it's kind of fun, right? Well, we also know Jesus was born where? In the city of Bethlehem, Right? little town about five miles south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, being the capital city of Israel. And however long it's been since the time of Jesus' birth, Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus are still in Bethlehem. But now we're going to see that they're living in a house, not in some little stable or in an inn. Now, second part of verse 1 through verse 2 shows us a group of men who show up from the east. The Bible calls them wise men, or another translation might call them magi. Now, you hear the word magi, if that reminds you of magic or magician, it should, because those words all come from the same root. And if you think back in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, right, there were men in the, the Babylonian Empire that interpreted dreams, they interpreted signs for King Nebuchadnezzar. You're thinking of the right kind of people who are called magi. They were wealthy men, they were well-respected men, they were skilled in astronomy, they thought they could practice astrology. Uh, Now, if you go by your nativity scenes, how many were there? In every nativity scene, right? Now, let me just say to you, it is extremely unlikely that a group of three rich dudes traveled all the way across the desert with a whole bunch of money by themselves. The reason people say there were three is because we see three gifts later and historical legend ascribed one gift to each guy. But there's no reason to assume that's true. There were probably several men with armed guards surrounding them to make this trip, which would explain, by the way, how they got the attention of King Herod so easily. Because when you're a king and and rich dudes with armies around them go walking up to your city, you notice. Well, the wise men, they get to Jerusalem... They go to the king, they start asking around, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So the wise men, they saw something in the sky that made them believe that a new king had been born, and an important guy. And they come to Jerusalem, which is the capital city, which makes sense, that's where you go to find a king, and they want to find out about the birth of this important young man. Now, Again, let's talk to, think about it. How in the world did these guys get an idea that seeing some star in the sky was going to indicate that a new king and an important king had been born in Israel? It's possible, not definite, that this could have come from Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of David. So a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. 
That was the word of the pagan prophet Balaam. God gave him a word in which he predicted the rise of God's chosen king, the Messiah, in Israel. And maybe it is that when the Jews were captive in Babylon, maybe this text from the book of Numbers made its way into the hands of the stargazers of the Babylonian or the later Persian Empire. Maybe, maybe they thought this text was important because it sure looks like it is. Maybe God used this weird little portion of his word to make the people aware of a way to spot the coming of the Messiah into the world. But whatever it was that drew these guys, right? Here's the thing. They came to Jerusalem looking for the king. And when they came, they had a purpose. They told Herod they had come to worship the new king. They came to bow down before the new king, to declare the new king to be greater than them. They might have even come to acknowledge that this young guy came from God himself. It's really hard to know what was in their minds, whether it came from the signs in the skies or their knowledge of the scriptures. The fact is, God did something special with these men from the East. God revealed himself, and he revealed his working in history to those three men, or however many men there were. And those men came to find out more. When they saw God was up to something, they looked for more of what was God up to, and they came to worship it. Now, what can we learn from those guys? What can we learn from what happened here? They came to worship. They followed the lead of God, and they took action to express that they had respect for God. You know what? Today we have the same kind of opportunity. We have the opportunity to worship God. He's given us his word. He's shown us his glory and his creation. He has shown us his kindness. He's shown us his greatness. And if we're going to be wise people, we'll follow God's lead and worship him just like we see in this account. Don't miss the opportunity here. Seize every chance you get to see God at work. Seize every chance you get to bow down before him. Seize every chance you get to express to God your worship. Keep your eyes open for glimpses of the glory of God. Look into his word. Follow his lead. And God will lead you to worship him. Be drawn to Jesus by the God who reveals himself to you. Now secondly, I'll start looking at some of the people in the story a little further. The second point, point number two, is negative. Do not use Jesus as a vain curiosity. Do not use Jesus as a vain curiosity. Look at verses 3 through 6. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod hears from the wise men that there's a new star in the sky and a new king has been born. And Herod is troubled, and all Jerusalem is troubled with him. Now why do you think Herod was troubled? Herod was troubled because he doesn't want anybody arriving who will challenge his power. And let me let you in on something here over this chapter. 
we're going to see there's a contrast between Herod, a fairly illegitimate king, and God's genuine promised king. Herod knows his authority hangs on a thread. Herod is bothered by this, but the rest of Jerusalem is troubled too. You know why? Because when Herod is troubled, people die. So, Herod summons the best Jewish scholars of the day. He wants the men who know their scriptures better than anybody he knows. And he has one question for them. Where is the Christ? Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And to the scholars, this was child's play. This is Bible 101. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us that God's promised king is going to be born in the little town of Bethlehem just about five miles away from where Herod was. Now let me tell you guys something. There's something here that bugs me. And it should bug you. The Jewish scholars get a question from Herod. They're part of all Jerusalem, right? They know. They know that that there, there's a disturbance going on in the city. There are men who have shown up with an entourage and they're asking about a newborn king. How hard would it be for the scholars to think through the fact that these men have come from afar because they want to see the Messiah who has just been born? This isn't hard. And here's what bugs me. And this, by the way, again, think about this is, this is going to fit us in some ways. The scholars give a scholarly answer and they give nothing more. There is no evidence that any one of them is excited about the fact that the Messiah might have just shown up. There's no evidence that any one of them thought, hey, the Christ might be here. There's no evidence that any one of these scholars sneaked out and said, hey guys, can I come with you? I'd like to find the king of the Jews. These scholarly men can give a perfectly accurate Bible answer and let it have no impact on their lives whatsoever. Ever. And that bugs me. If you are going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, do not be like those men. Do not let the facts and the details of the Savior's birth bounce through your brain and off your lips without impacting your heart. Do not become so fixed on having all the right Bible answers that you fail somehow to experience the glory of Christ. I said that we don't want to let Jesus be a vain curiosity to us. It's too easy. Especially for those of us who care about doctrine to make our faith an intellectual exercise. Is this familiar to you, by the way? Isn't it too easy to think that you getting the answers right, that you getting your theology sharp, 
that you fixing the faulty thinking of others is what the faith is about. You ever feel that way? Be honest. Have you ever been tempted toward that little pull to, I'm just going to fix the way you think and I'm going to get my facts figured out because that's what's good. Listen, folks, that's not what Jesus is about. Jesus is God who came to earth to rescue his people and we are weak sinners who need to be rescued. God is good, gracious, kind, and loving. And making much of that God is what your life is about. Yes, theology matters greatly. And you will never hear me pretend that it doesn't. But your heart matters too. We must love Jesus as more than a curiosity. Third point. Do not use Jesus for selfish gain. Do not use Jesus for selfish gain. Look at verses 7 and 8. One more thing will bug you. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them at what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So here we go. King Herod, for his part, puts on his best politician smile. He says, Hey guys, when did you see that star pop up exactly? How long ago was that? How old do you think this guy is? See, Herod, Herod's doing a little math. He wants to know how old this Messiah might be. This is, by the way, one of the reasons we think Jesus could have been two years old by the time the wise men get there. Because in verse 16 of this chapter, Herod is going to order that all the children two years old and under in Bethlehem are killed. He's not looking for an infant. He's looking for a toddler. Well, Herod acts like, I mean, I really want to come worship this guy too. Help me find him. But see, there's no worship in Herod's heart. He intends, if the wise men will lead him there, to go and kill this little threat to his throne before he ever has a chance to grow up. Like I said, some people look at the scripture with scholarly eyes. That's what the Jewish teachers did. By the way, I love scholarly stuff. I love reading deep books and thinking deep thoughts. But if that's all you got, you've got a problem. Some people like Herod look at Christianity in general as a way to use religious words and religious things to get ahead of religious people. Can I ask you if you watched the news recently if there might be any people that you've seen that suddenly have become more publicly religious to try to make you like them? Folks, don't you dare be like Herod. Don't you dare think that you can use the church as a way to get your way from those who would really want to worship God. 
Our Lord will judge very severely those who try to use His name as a tool for hurting or somehow getting a leg up on others. Nobody can trick God. You can't trick God. Don't pretend. And I'll tell you that true worship has never once been about you trying to get your way by throwing out the name of God. That's true in politics and it's true in prosperity theology. Christianity is not about you using God's name to get your way. True worship is about you and me surrendering our lives to joyfully honor God. Don't be like Herod. Worship Jesus in truth. Now, fourth point. Number four. Let's just make it two words. Worship Jesus. We've learned a lot of what not to do. Let's go to a simple point. Worship Jesus. 9 through 11 says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold! Well, you see a behold. Remember, that's like a, that's like a biblical looky. Check it out. That's what's being said. If you can read behold and don't think check it out, wow, this is amazing, you've missed the word. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Here we go. we got the wise men. They leave the king. They're looking for the new king. And as they head for Bethlehem, they see the star again, and it makes them happy. The Bible says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Let me ask you, when's the last time you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy? For some folks, it might have been like like Super Bowl Sunday, what? Amen. Thank you, Rob. He rejoiced exceedingly with great joy this morning. You know what it means? When we get scholarly on you, it means they got really, really, really happy. That's what it means. See, see, with that level of happiness, there's a hint here that maybe they had not always been seeing the star and they got extra happy when the star came back. There's other evidence, by the way, that the star, the wise men saw it from wherever they were, Persia, Babylon, I mean, really like Iran or Iraq, Right? Wherever they'd been, they looked up in the sky, they saw a new star, they knew they were supposed to go, but then they didn't know where to go. They saw a star and it drew them to Israel, but the star did not lead them to Bethlehem, they ended up in Jerusalem. They went to the capital city, why? Because that's the logical place to look for a king. Once they got to the capital city, they had no idea where to go. The star was not giving them step-by-step instructions here. But when the star reappeared, it led them not only from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, but it led them to the specific house where Mary and Joseph were living with the baby Jesus. Now, a lot of people have tried to tell us what kind of thing these guys saw. And there are some really good books that have been written recently on it. What was it? I mean... Was it a supernova? Something brilliant in the sky that hadn't been there? Was it a comet? Was it the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in, the constel- in, 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 in Pisces so that you can see, picture this 
kingly thing happening somewhere? Was it a shooting star? Was it those aliens from Independence Day? I don't know. I got, I'm pretty sure it wasn't the last one. They're all interesting thoughts, right? But the problem is, it's really hard to make something match both the properties of things in the sky and the description of what the star does here at the end of the story. Here's what I'll say to you. The wise men definitely saw something supernatural that God put in front of their eyes. Now, in the Old Testament, again, I'm not saying what this was exactly. I'm not. But in the Old Testament, God led the nation of Israel where he wanted them to go by putting a pillar of fire in the sky. Whatever happened here, God used a light in the sky to lead the wise men not only to the right country, not only to the right town, but to the right street address to find Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And so what you need to see here for sure is this is a miracle from God. And when the wise men got to the house, they see Mary. And what do they do for her? Nothing. Do not devalue Mary. She was important. She was a godly young woman. But ain't nobody in the Bible bows down and worships her. They do no homage to Mary. But they fall down and they worship the baby, the toddler, Jesus. That, that combination of the terms, they fall down and worship. This means they were really worshiping Jesus like a king. They were bowing down. They were saying, you're important. They were saying, we're lower than you. They were saying, you're in charge. You're the master. We're the servants. And when they worship, they give Jesus three gifts. They offer him gold. That's a treasure that befits a king. They offer him frankincense, something that used to be used in the worship of God, which maybe indicates a grasp of his divinity. They offer him myrrh, something that was used, among other things, as a perfume for embalming a dead body. Could it be? Could it be that God sovereignly led these men to give Jesus gifts that are perfectly in line with who he was going to be? Because Jesus is King of Kings, God in flesh, the Lamb who would be slain for our sins. Or, or maybe, maybe this is supposed to remind you of foreign dignitaries coming to, to give gifts to God's chosen kings, right? The Queen of Sheba brought treasures to King Solomon. Well, Jesus says himself later, something greater than Solomon was here. Whatever the gifts mean for sure, and it is really tough to say whether that symbolism is supposed to be there or not. Whatever they mean, the wise men come to Jesus and they genuinely worship Jesus. They're not coming to him to gain something more than the joy of glorifying God. They're honest. They're generous. They're respectful. They're reverent. They worship Jesus the way that Jesus ought to be worshipped. And folks, we want to worship Jesus the way the wise men worshipped him. Think about God. Set your heart on worshiping Him rightly, genuinely. Be generous. Be reverent. Be loving. Offer Him worship that matches who He is as God, as King, as the one who paid the debt for your sin. Take actions that God says in His Word we are supposed to do so that we can worship Jesus as the King, that we are His subjects and He is the Master. Let's learn from these wise men and truly worship the Lord Jesus. And the last point, point number five, 
This is about knowledge. This is about how you think. Know that Jesus will complete his story. Verse 12 says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, in case any of you are afraid that Herod's scheme is going to somehow keep God from protecting Jesus and accomplishing his plan, can I just tell you not to worry? God warns the wise men in a dream not to return to Jerusalem. He warns them, don't go back to Herod and tell them where this baby is. Why? How's that happen? Y'all, God's in control. Consider how this fits in with what we saw in the book of Matthew over the Christmas season, for the two of you that remember that we preached this in Christmas time. Back at the beginning of the book, what do we see first? We see that genealogy, right? And we learn in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus is a descendant of God's line of promise. Jesus connects back to Abraham and back to David. And all the Old Testament of the Bible exists to show us Man greatly needs a rescuer. And God says, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you over and over again, I'm sending somebody into the world to rescue my people. And he's going to come from the family of Abraham. And he's going to come from the kingly line of David. And the one to come, he's the hope of the whole entire world, not just the nation of Israel. The one to come is the king over the whole world forever. We saw that in the first 17 or 18 verses of Matthew chapter 1. And then we see the story of Jesus' birth, right? How did Jesus get into the world? He came into the world as more than a promised king. He came into the world as the very real son of God. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. And he is truly God in the flesh. We see that at the end of Matthew 1. He is worthy of worship as king and as God. And now what do we see? We see God using signs in the heavens and maybe even strange prophecies of the Old Testament to draw to the newborn king who? Wise men from the east, Gentiles, men who don't normally follow God. They've come, they've seen a false king, and instead they walk to the true king and they place themselves under his rule. These men from away from Israel have seen exactly what God's doing and they declare themselves to be under the reign of the Messiah. Now with that in mind, do you think that for even one moment God was going to let a cruelly insane king representing the Roman Empire and a power-mad politician stand in the way of the Lord Jesus accomplishing what he wants to accomplish? Do you think that's going to happen? No. By the way, keep that in mind when you freak out about this coming election. God does not let crazy politicians stop him from doing his will. God is bigger than all that. Herod is going to try to stop Jesus. Herod is going to fail. The Jewish teachers are going to try to ignore Jesus. The Jewish teachers are going to fail. Jesus is going to do everything that God the Father sent him to do. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to die to pay for the sins of God's children. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to rule forever. Praise God, he's going to come back one day and set this crazy world right. His story is going to be told. His work is going to be done. 
And what in the world do we do with this? This is a Christmas story, isn't it? It's not that important. Yes, it is. This is way, way bigger than anybody's holiday legend. Depends who you are, how you should respond. Are you a follower of Jesus here this morning? Most of us probably are. If so, look to the beauty of nature, look to the clarity of Scripture, and let those things draw you to worship the Lord. Avoid making your faith about vain curiosity or selfish gain. Instead, genuinely worship the Savior and trust that God is going to continue to bring to pass everything that God has planned. And if, if you're here or you're hearing this and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, know this. God is shining a light before your spiritual eyes. Like the star that rose before the wise men, God is telling you, this is the way to come to me. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior. Come to Jesus. Like the wise men, make a decision that says Jesus is going to be my king and I'm going to be his servant. Believe in him. Ask him, Jesus, please forgive me of my sin because of what you've done. Please, Jesus, lead my life from now on. Then join us. Join us as we join together. And worship the Savior before whom wise men still bow. Let's pray together. Lord God, there is so, so much here. This story is so much bigger than us. And it's so much bigger than, again, a cutesy scene that we set up at Christmas time. There's nothing wrong with people remembering this story and thinking about it at Christmas time. There's nothing wrong with people wanting to remember and wanting to emphasize the gifts given to the Savior. But Lord, help us see how big this really is. Help us see who you are and what you're doing in our lives because of it. Help us magnify the wonderful, merciful, glorious Savior. And help us never, ever make it small. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Let's stand together and grab your worship guides.